as I considered what to talk with you about this evening, which is my last uh, Dhamma talk for this two-month period that, I, that I've been teaching here at the Forest Refuge, what kept coming up to me again and again was the Pali term samvega, a term that's actually a bit difficult to render into English because it includes a few different mind states. Samvega most often translates into English as spiritual urgency. In the texts, this is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice and one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice by what should move one and the systematic effort of one so moved. Samvega, spiritual urgency, isn't at all frantic or tense or obsessive. It's an energy, a a state of mind that most often comes out of some degree of understanding of the way of things, the natural laws, how it is. Often at first felt or includes some degree of the perception of change or impermanence or may be sensed as the endless round and round of daily life and the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. Or some vega may be felt as the untenability of the suffering in life in general or one's own life in one's own life. This feeling attended by some vague, or maybe not so vague, sense that it doesn't have to be this way, that there's another way, and includes an urge to move towards this potential other way. When some vega first stirs us, It's often an emotional state that might be somewhat difficult, might be disturbing, until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to. And at the same time, it has the power, in fact, to move us to connect in that direction. And all along the way of our practice, samvega is an essential energy of successful practice. From my own experience, I would describe samvega as the feeling of being stirred, the feeling of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency. 
by the phenomena that goes on around me, phenomena that I may be directly involved in in some way or that I'm an observer of, with Samvega really being an inner response to the various occurrences that happen outside of formal practice times. And of course, uh, it's also the spiritual urgency that arises in direct relation to the experiences within practice itself. That some vega that arises out of a moment of direct, mindful connection and clear comprehension or wise reflection that moves and inspires me towards a deeper and more sustained effort in practice. That samvega that moves me and stirs me again and again and again towards letting go of, towards relinquishing the painful contraction of clinging to anything. When Samvega is present, it's experienced as an urgency or an ardency, a passion, we could say, for spiritual practice. Something that each of you have felt, and probably many times. And very likely, at least in part, what brought you here to the Forest Refuge to practice. Your ardency, your sincerity in and with your practice moves and inspires me. And I think it's safe to say that it's moving and inspiring for all of us who teach here at the Forest Refuge. And really the primary reason that Samvega came up as the topic to look at with you this evening. So more specifically, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us, moving us towards sustaining and deepening our practice? What might move us outwardly and inwardly towards this sense of spiritual urgency. We know the beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while being driven in his chariot through the royal city after all his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphor. Considering the possibility that these four messengers 
these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, and though not uh, so common in our time, in our culture, the many and obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time and culture that Siddhartha grew up in. Considering the possibility that the great and very ripe mind of Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these common aspects of life much more deeply, much more deeply than had ever occurred before, to such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches and the comfort of his life urgently moved to search for the truth, inspired and moved to be liberated, inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relation to the complacent lull and familiar habits of his life and the overt suffering in life that touched him so profoundly during those few days. Isn't it really the same case with us? That most of the time, with the many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, Much of the time, we've reacted by ignoring them, by distracting ourselves in myriad ways, or even by pretending or believing that something else is happening. Until somehow, at least one of these messengers touches us very deeply, and we respond. We respond, in fact, in a similar way as did Siddhartha, by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than constantly feeling overrun with sadness or anguish or fear or anger or confusion in relation to these common occurrences of life. Our closest surroundings are full of stirring things, stirring in the sense of samvega. If we generally don't perceive them as such, isn't it because of our habits? the habits that make our vision dull, our mind dull, and our heart insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen to us in relationship to the Buddhist teaching. We've all encountered times of quite powerful intellectual and emotional stimulation in relation to the teachings and practice. But at times, this 
energy, this impetus, can lose its freshness, lose its force, its impelling force, as probably each of you have experienced at times. The remedy, so to say, the remedy is to constantly renew it by turning to the fullness of life around us and the fullness of life within us, which constantly illustrates what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths, constantly illustrates these four truths in ever new variations, as you've been noticing, illustrating the truth of what suffering is and its cause, its origin, the clinging relationship to what can't be clung to, and the truth that there's an end, There's an end to this suffering, the solution, so to say, the solution being not clinging. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path that each of us is engaged in walking along at our own pace. And as each of you know, a moment of a direct vision within our own body-mind experience of these truths, or in relationship to what might be, for instance, a long-accustomed sight of some manifestation of poverty in this life, or a crying, weeping child, or another yogi's distress, or the unaccustomed connection with the illness of a loved one, or myriad other kinds of flavors of experience, each having the power to startle us, so to say, to promote a reflective response, to stir a sense of urgency, in our resolve to practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. And we're stirred and moved through a clearer and even more direct and subtle seeing and knowing of the impermanent not-self and thus ultimately unsatisfactory nature of everything through seeing our own experiences of body and mind more directly, clearly, and more and more subtly as our practice deepens. A moment of knowing the impermanent nature of things, a moment of knowing that it's all anatta, And we're often then urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path towards the ending of suffering. We each have many, many stories. 
many experiences within our practice that exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of samvega. And it's very often part of what's heard in talking with you during interviews. There are a number of stories, dialogues in the suttas regarding the stirring up of the Buddhist disciples towards them acquiring a sense of urgency, being stirred up by the Buddha himself or by one of the arahants or the practicing devas. There's one sutta titled Connected Discourses in the Woods. where various woodland devas approach certain bhikkhus who are uh, practicing in woodland thickets. I'd like to share a few of these encounters in verse as they appear in this sutta. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now, on that occasion, while the bhikkhu had entered into his day's abiding, meaning his day's practice. He kept on thinking evil, unwholesome thoughts connected with the household life. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verses. And these are the verses. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove man the desire for people, then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. You must abandon discontent, be mindful. Let us remind you that the way of the good, let us remind you of the way of the good, hard to cross indeed is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust, so a bhikkhu, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. This next dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddha's Parinibbana, after his death. His closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been very strongly encouraged to attain arahantship before the first Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to begin during the rains retreat. Ananda had gone into the Kosalan country and entered into a forest abode to meditate. But when people found out that he was there, they continually came to him, lamenting over the death of the Buddha. So Ananda constantly felt that he had to instruct them in the law of impermanence. The deva, aware 
that the council could succeed only if Ananda attended as an arahant, decided to incite him to resume his meditation. And this is uh, from the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now, on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for the venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the verse. Having en entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will this hullabaloo do for you? <laughs> then the Venerable Ananda, stirred up by that de deity, acquired a sense of urgency. I picked this particular dialogue to read because though we're certainly not in the same position as Ananda, uh, we're definitely often stirred up uh, by seeming absolutely important, that it's seemingly absolutely important and necessary for us to engage in hullabaloo of uh, various circumstances, both externally and internally, and neglect or lose, so to say, our practice, and instead go for these things. To me, this little verse beautifully and very clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear, and not to neglect what needs to be attended to, but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily into the Hullabaloo. And another verse. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling in Visali, in a certain woodland thicket. Now, on that occasion, an all night festival was being held in Visali. Then that bhikkhu, lamenting as he heard the clamor of instruments, gongs, and music, coming from Vasali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. As you dwell in the forest, all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many of those, many are those who yearn for your state. A forest dweller subsisting on alms food with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you as hell beings envy those going to heaven. Then the bhikkhu stirred up by that deva acquired a sense of urgency.
The next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will, of harming, and of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. And the deva, who also inhabited the same woodland out of compassion and wishing to stir up some vega, in him spoke these verses to the bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, meaning relinquished attending to things as permanent self and pleasurable, you should reflect carefully, meaning careful attention, yani so manisakara in Pali, or as attending to their true characteristics, impermanent, non-self, and unsatisfactory, or their suffering nature. You should reflect carefully. And then the deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, on dhamma, sangha, and your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness and rapture and happiness as well. And when you are suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then the bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The last verse that I'd like to share with you is regarding a bhikkhu who, after returning uh, from alms round and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced, used to descend into a pond and sniff a red lotus. <laughs> when, the, when the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject, from the Buddha and entered in the, into the forest to meditate. This bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. And this is the verse, verses, dialogue verses. This is the, the deva. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take. I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say, I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one with such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, when a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it's to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me, 
Please, O Spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the Deva responds, We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, Bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. And then that bhikkhu stirred up by the deva acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems that amongst those of us then and now, those devoted to the teachings and practices offered by the Buddha 2,500 years ago, and those of us right here and now who are quite sincerely practicing, that things haven't really changed much. Our predicament crosses time and cultures. The teachings are timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were spoken, as each of us knows to whatever degree from our own experience. When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy and courage that helps the development and blossoming of faith, sada, and confidence, pasada, all of which enables us to break through what might be a sense of timidity or maybe hesitation or fear or doubt or complacency. These last five states of mind being based in our routine, habitual ways of living and thinking. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his bhikkhus to arouse some vega. In speaking to a group of disciples in one sutta, he says, rouse yourselves. Sit up. What good is there in sleeping? For those afflicted by disease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction, for those afflicted by disease, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourself. Sit up. Resolutely train yourself to attain peace. Do not let the king of death, seeing you are careless, lead you astray and dominate you. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Do not waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of hell, meaning the realms of suffering. Negligent, negligence is a taint 
and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about, we could say, keeping one foot out of the mainstream. The ground of which is actually a sense of spiritual urgency, samvega. The Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the, predic pre the predicament of the unsatisfactory cycle of birth, aging, and death, the round of unsatisfactoriness, that not only does he ask us not to close our eyes to reality, to engage, but to engage in a moment-to-moment -moment observation of the cycle, but to also be completely honest with ourselves. His confidence was so clear and so strong that he called the reality of suffering the first noble truth, which from this perspective we could say is a gift that confirms our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. And then from the gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks, asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not out there somewhere, not coming from some outside thing or some outside being, but that the true cause of suffering is coming from in here, in here, in the craving and clinging present in our own mind. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, confirms, of course, coming directly from his own experience and using himself as an example, confirms that there's an end to suffering. There's a very available release from the cycle. And he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of mind, particular noble qualities of heart. The moral or ethical responsibility, sila, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, joy and happiness, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, confidence. All of these really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency, samvega, that led us at one point 
to look for a solution to our predicament. Our predicament has a practical solution. A solution that's really within the powers of every single human being. Which we begin to have a growing faith in. For instance, as we read and study the many stories, the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. And most importantly, that we come to know out of our own direct experience, out of our own direct experience through our practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates Sambhaga and is the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency. The last story that I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one from a contemporary writer, Annie Dillard. A story that I've found to be uh, very inspiring and that invoked a spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it many years ago and that again had a, an effect on me the same effect on me, really, when I came across it the other day. These are a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week I startled a weasel who startled me and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one before, seen one wild before. He was 10 inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruit wood, soft furred, alert. His face was fierce, small and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of a chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes. I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into stillness as he was emerging from beneath an enormous shaggy wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked, and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain, or a sudden beating of brains, with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs. It felled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. 
the world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. That was only last week, and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing, and the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleadings, but he didn't return. I tell you I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds, and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular. But I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast, where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked and ingested directly, like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, chastity, obedience, and even of silence by choice. The thing is, the thing is to stock your calling in a certain skilled and supple way to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle it from, to dangle from it, limp, wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even, till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with the fierce and pointed will.
In the light of Samvega, it feels um, appropriate this evening to close the talk with the Buddha's last words. These last words that he offered just before he died to his monastic and lay disciples. He offered them to uh, instill a sense of spiritual urgency in them, to exhort them to keep going, keep going along the path. This particular quote is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that comes from the Tibetan version of the Parinibbana Sutta. O bhikkhus, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled. For this is the nature of life. Diligently practice, practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precious. Oops, wrong word. Everything in this life is precarious. <laughs> Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or not moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I am about to cross over. This is my final teaching. So I'd like to uh, close this sit with a chanting of the uh, sharing of blessings as we did last week. And those of you that um, know it or have the uh, the sheet with it on it please feel free to join me wholeheartedly now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death. May those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. 
through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. And let's just sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.